0: So, War and Peace, Romeo and Juliet, the Hatfields and McCoys, Harry Potter, and you-know-who. All great stories have conflict. And all great stories ultimately come to the resolution of that conflict. It can be individual or it could be societal, but every good story has conflict and resolution to that conflict. We love stories with conflict. Unless, of course, the story is a true story and we're the ones involved in it, and then we don't like conflict so much. But let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you experienced interpersonal conflict? Maybe it was an argument with a friend or family member. Maybe he was on the way to church this morning. But the question is, why do we have conflict? And more importantly, how do we resolve conflict? If you've been here for the last few weeks, you know that we're in now the middle of this series of Ars Moriendi*, The Art of Dying, and we just a few weeks ago, introduced the five separations or the five kinds of death that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. There's man's separation from God. There's man's separation from himself within himself. Today, we're going to talk about man's separation from mankind. And then in future weeks, we'll talk about man's separation from creation and creation's separation from creation. Five divisions or separations or types of death that are a result of the fall. And today we get to talk about man's separation from mankind, interpersonal conflict that takes place because of sin. Death is something we cannot escape, we must not ignore, and for which the wise will prepare. And so today we're going to zero in on this type of death, this death that takes place from man with man. We're going to look throughout this series not only at what the Scripture says, but I'm also going to offer to you just some practical wisdom that I've gained as a pastor who have come alongside people who are dying or come alongside families who have experienced the death of a loved one. And uh, my basic thesis throughout this entire series is that a person can only die a good death if they have lived a good life, knowing that one day they will indeed die die. So please open your Bibles up to Genesis 2 and 3 and Colossians chapter 3 as we take a look at this idea of putting division to death, mankind separated from mankind. As you're opening up to Genesis 2 and 3 and Colossians 3, you can see the problem, solution, and application format we're going to follow this morning. First, we'll talk about the problem, and that is mankind's separation from mankind. Because of sin, because of death, we all experience conflict and division. Number two on your outline, the solution, we'll see the peace of Christ. God's solution to this division within the body of Christ is the peace of Christ. And then finally, number three, we'll put it all together and talk about the application, how we can put division to death. But let's begin by looking at number one on your outline. Let's travel back in time, and remind ourselves of what we saw before the fall, before sin and death entered into the world. Back in Genesis chapter 2, let me read for you verses 15 through 17. This is before the fall, before sin and death, before conflict. Genesis 2 verses 15 through 17 says, then the Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, notice this, you will surely die. So Adam and Eve, of course, had the choice. Would they or would they not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? But here we see the consequence, the warning that God issues. If they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, notice the consequence, you will surely die or dying you will die. So there's the warning, the consequence. But again, before the fall, when we think specifically of this interpersonal relationship between Adam and Eve, I want you to look at verse 24 of chapter 2, this is before the fall, before sin and death enter the world. Notice how the Bible describes the interpersonal relationship between Adam and Eve. Um, you know that God put Adam to sleep. He took out of Adam a rib, and from that rib, he fashioned Eve. He fashioned woman. And the verse 24 tells us, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And notice verse 24, They, the two, shall become one flesh. Before the fall, there was no interpersonal conflict between Adam and Eve. They operated as God intended for them to operate as husband and wife, as one flesh. But then as we jump ahead and we go after the fall, once Adam and Eve take of the fruit and they eat of it, once sin and death enter into the world, I want you to notice what takes place in chapter 3, verse 12. This one flesh union... Now take a look, verse 12 of chapter 3. The man said, as God confronts Adam and asks him, what have you done? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Notice the conflict. Notice the blame game being played here. Adam and Eve, who were supposed to be one flesh, never divided, are now separated from one another. Adam blames Eve, thus breaking apart this one flesh union that God desired between man and wife. There's a breakdown, a death in their interpersonal relationship. This is a separation of that one flesh union that God had created there in Genesis. This is the sociological impact and separation we see here in Genesis chapter 3. But this interpersonal conflict, this interpersonal division and separation did not just stay with Adam and Eve. No, sadly, it spread and entered into all of human history. As you keep reading the text, immediately in chapter 4, flip ahead to chapter 4, we see the tragic tale of this separation and division entering into the children of Adam and Eve as Cain murders, kills his own brother Abel. This conflict and division continues to spread, and as we keep reading in the book of Genesis now, this interpersonal conflict becomes all-out warfare and geopolitical division on a global scale. Jump ahead to chapter 6. Chapter 6, notice verse 13. This is Noah and the flood. God said to Noah, verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me, notice this, because the earth is filled with violence. The earth is filled now with violence, with separation, with conflict, with division, with warfare. And on and on and on we could go in the story of Scripture. Abraham soon will pass off his wife Sarah As his sister in Egypt, Joseph's brothers will sell him off into slavery. This spreads not just individually but now nationally as the people of Israel will experience hostility with neighboring nations. Israel will ultimately be conquered by Assyria, Babylon, and Rome. This is all interpersonal and societal separation and division, all a consequence of the fall. Not only do we see this in the biblical story, but we see this in our story as well. Think about this. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, we see the evidence of division everywhere we look. Open any newspaper and you see evidence of the fall. You see it in the mistreatment and abuse of people's spouses and children and other family members. You see the evidence of the fall and this interpersonal conflict and the exploitation of various vulnerable people groups, women and children, the elderly, and so on. You see the evidence of the fall, this interpersonal separation in the spread of war and societal violence, racism, crimes of every kind. You see it in the breakdown of the judicial systems, the need for prisons, the necessity of military and national armament, all of the efforts of the United Nations and NATO. All of this is evidence and it's a result of the fall and this interpersonal conflict that exists. And we also see how we human beings in our own effort try to resolve this conflict. I mean, think of the millions of people, the trillions of dollars that are spent every single year trying to resolve interpersonal conflict and societal conflict. It's staggering. Governments and politicians, they all give their best efforts trying to resolve this conflict, but it results In failure. It reminds me of a great quote attributed to Winston Churchill. He said it a little differently, actually, but uh, he said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the rest. So we try and we try and we try to resolve this conflict. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, human beings have experienced conflict and division. And ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have longed for the solution, which is ultimately peace. What we're ultimately longing for, what we're ultimately looking for is peace. Peace was broken because of human sin. The trouble is that Humanity's best efforts cannot and will not resolve, especially our separation with God, but even our separation with one another. However, what we cannot do, what we cannot do, I propose to you this morning, God has done, bringing not only peace between us and God, but also the possibility of peace among one another. So, what is God's solution? What is God's solution and his answer to mankind's separation from mankind? Well, let's take a look at number two on your outline. The ultimate answer, God's answer to this problem of conflict and division, is the peace of Christ. So, turn over to Colossians chapter three as we see the solution. Now, as you're turning to Colossians chapter three, Uh, Let me go to God's ultimate answer, his ultimate solution to this problem of conflict, and it will be found in and only in what we call the millennium and then the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus comes, when he returns after the rapture, the tribulation, when he comes and establishes his thousand-year reign on the earth, it's then and only then that the prince of peace will reign and when ultimate peace will come upon the earth. But even then, and this is a side note, but it's important. Even when Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth, there will still, because of sin, be a separation among mankind. Even then, there will be a separation among mankind between believers and non-believers. Between those who know Jesus and those who don't know Jesus, between those who are in and those who are not. In other words, when we think about this reconciliation between human beings and God, but also human beings among one another, uh, we do not believe in this idea of universalism that ultimately everybody is going to experience one day the peace of God. There will be a judgment. And there will be a separation among human beings. But, and here's what I want us to focus on this morning among those who are saved, among those who do know Jesus and his forgiveness, his reconciliation, his grace, his mercy, his love, one day, ultimately, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no separation. We will live together with God in perfect peace with him and with one another. That's the eventual, that's the eternal, but what about now? Can we... Even now, in the church, the body of Christ experience interpersonal peace with one another. And the answer is yes, but it's not easy. It's not easy, and it begins with a new mindset, a new way of thinking. I want you to notice Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And as I read these verses, I want you to notice the death and resurrection language that Paul uses here. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you've been resurrected with Him, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We'll see here in a minute that peace in the body of Christ is possible, but peace begins with a new mindset. It begins with this new death and resurrection mindset. Did you know that as a Christian you're already dead? You've already died. We've been talking about death now for several weeks, but Paul says, I want you to consider yourself already dead. You've you've already died to yourself. But you're living now a new resurrection life. The resurrection life of Jesus is now being lived out in you. You are dead to yourself, but you have a new life with Christ and God. And the only way to experience this interpersonal peace that God desires for us is to start with this new way of thinking, this death to self. And if we don't begin with that mindset, if we still try to live our life our own way, then there's going to be interpersonal conflict and division. We read about that in verses 5 through 11. Notice what Paul says, Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. He says, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead, or consider as dead the members of your earthly body. You could translate this as kill, or put to death the members of your earthly body. So, what does Paul want us to kill off? What does he want us to consider as dead? Notice in this list all of the interpersonal aspects, the things that divide human beings from one another, the results of the divisions of sin and death. Notice, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, Malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth Do not lie to one another Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices And have put on the new self Who is being renewed to a true knowledge According to the image of the one who created him A renewal in which there is no distinction Between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised Barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man But Christ is all and in all Again, as we look at this list, notice what these words mean in terms of their interpersonal dynamics. Paul tells the church, the believers there in Colossae to kill these things, to consider them as dead. Things like immorality. Immorality. The word for immorality there describes sexual sin. Think of all the interpersonal conflict that has happened because of sexual sin. Impurity, the word impurity there means filthiness or uncleanness. It's a very general term uh, that goes beyond just actions but even to the intentions. The word passion there refers to physical passions that are set loose in the body. Evil desire emphasizes especially what we think. Greed is the insatiable desire to have more, to have what is forbidden. Again, think of all the interpersonal conflict that comes as a result of greed. And on the list goes, verse 8, anger, this deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness that we feel towards other people. Wrath is the sudden outbursts of that anger. Anger. Malice is that which is bent on doing harm to other people. Intentionally hurting and harming other people. Slander is speaking negatively about others. Abusive speech is speech intended to hurt and wound people. And then to top it all off there, Paul says don't lie to one another, verse 9. Again, as you go through this list, think of all the interpersonal conflict that, that results because people don't kill off these things. They've not laid these attributes aside, these vices aside. Paul says, kill them. Consider them as dead. Lay them aside. And on the positive, notice what he says. He doesn't just say, lay these things aside, but replace them with something. Notice verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, here's what I want you to do, put on a heart of compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So not only does Paul want us to lay aside these things that divide us. But he wants us to put on these things that unite us. Things like compassion, showing sensitivity, especially to people suffering and in need. Kindness carries with it the idea of benevolence and generosity. Humility means thinking of others more than yourself. Gentleness means having consideration for other people. Patience is the quality of long-suffering. When we want to retaliate against people who have wronged us, we show patience instead. Bearing with one another means putting up with others and enduring discomfort. The Jace Cloud paraphrase here is putting up with people who annoy you. And finally, forgiving each other. Involves not holding a grudge, but letting go of the offense. Paul says, put these on. Let these attributes be true in your life. And then notice verses 14 and 15. Beyond all these things, above all these things, put on love. Which is the perfect bond, notice, of unity. Unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Paul says listen, on top of all of these other attributes, put on love, a love for one another. The word for love that Paul uses here is an unconditional love. It's a love that's self-giving, expecting nothing in return. It's the same kind of love that God has towards us. And without this kind of love, Paul says, there can be no unity. Notice the, the unity words that are here in verses 14 and 15. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, the peace of Christ, to which indeed you were called in one body. Again, think back to Genesis chapter 2, before the fall. God created Adam and Eve to exist as one flesh. And here the Apostle Paul, for believers in the church, he's called us to live as one body. As one body. And then notice again, verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule. Rule in your hearts. The word for rule here in verse 15 is a word that Paul borrows from an athletic image, athletic metaphor. It's the language of athletics. It could be translated as control or judge, loosely translated as umpire or referee. Let the love or let the peace of Christ Control, judge, umpire, or referee in your hearts. The peace of Christ should arbitrate our relationships. The peace of Christ should be the ultimate goal in our dealings interpersonally with one another. Peace should settle any friction and strife so that believers in the church can remain unified. Now, let me offer a few caveats. To live in peace with one another does not mean that we ignore sin or theological error. This does not mean that everybody's right, but it means that our ultimate goal is reconciliation. We do not sacrifice truth, but believers should relate to one another in such a way that facilitates peace. Also, Paul is not meaning here that suddenly in the body of Christ we all lay aside what we think and there will be no differences of opinion. No, but what Paul is saying here is that even in our differences of opinion, we should work together despite those differences. To summarize what Paul is saying here in Colossians 3, F.F. Bruce says this, there is no reason There is no reason why those who have received the peace which Christ established should have anything other than peaceful relations among themselves. In other words, we Christians, because we have received the peace of Christ through Jesus' death and resurrection, we should be willing to extend the peace of Christ to one another. But let me pause right there and acknowledged that all of us, if you've lived much life at all, you know how difficult this can be, right? This is not easy. It's not automatic. If it were easy and if it were automatic, then Paul wouldn't have to command it. But just because it's hard, just because it's challenging, doesn't mean we can ignore it. And ultimately, I want you to see what Paul does here. He grounds our forgiveness of one another on the forgiveness we have received from God. Look again at verse 13. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, notice, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive one another. Again, I know this is challenging, but we got to understand, yes, maybe the person you're forgiving, they may not deserve it. The person you're bearing with, their annoyances, their grievances, they may not deserve your forgiveness. They may not deserve your compassion, but the reality of the gospel is we don't deserve God's forgiveness and compassion and mercy either. But as those who have received the peace of Christ... We're called to extend the peace of Christ just as the Lord forgave us. I know it isn't easy, but it's the interpersonal application of the gospel. It's the interpersonal application of the gospel. Again, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Through Jesus, God offers to you freely a gift of eternal life and of peace with God. Through Jesus, you become part of the family of God, the one body of Christ. All you do, all you can do is to accept that gift through faith. And let me pause right here and ask you, those of you in this room and those of you watching online, have you received that forgiveness? Have you received that peace with God? Have you received that redemption that Jesus and only Jesus offers to you? If not, I want to give you the opportunity right where you are to put your faith in Him. To put your faith in Him, to receive that forgiveness, that grace, and that mercy, and to become part of the family of God, the body of Christ, the church. Most importantly, because of the gospel, we have peace with God, by far most importantly. But secondarily, we're also called to peace with one another. Again, think about this. On the cross, Jesus was separated from fellow man. He was separated from his disciples. He was separated from the very people he came to save. He was separated from his own family. He was essentially alone there at the cross, on the cross, separated from his friends. And yet, because of the resurrection... As soon as he's brought back from the dead, what does Jesus do? He restores his brothers who ran away from him, who deserted him. He restores that brokenness. And then he commissioned his disciples to go and make more disciples like them who live together in peace. That's the individual peace in interpersonal relationships, but we also see it on the larger global scale as well. Think about this. When Jesus died there on the cross, the nation of Israel was occupied by Rome. And yet because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you see Jewish followers of Jesus, you see Roman Gentile followers of Jesus there in the united body of Christ. And even among those, you see What could have been separations? You see Jews who were opposed to one another on almost everything in life. You have tax collectors and zealots. You have men and women. You have the religious and the non-religious all together, coming together, united together because of the one thing they have in common, and that is their common belief in the death and resurrection of the one who saved them. And we see here in Colossians chapter 3 the emphasis on how this gospel is supposed to impact our interpersonal relationships. It starts there in verses one through four with a new way of thinking, but it results also in a new way of living—a way of peace. I'm always amazed by the story of Elizabeth Elliot. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot were missionaries in the Amazon jungle. And in 1956, while attempting to make contact with a tribe there, Jim was speared to death. He was murdered. And yet after Jim was murdered, Elizabeth, along with her young daughter Valerie, would later return to those very people to live among them, to minister among them, to the very people who killed her husband in cold blood all because of a passion for the gospel, to see these people saved. And it's an amazing story of the peace that they found with God, but also the peace that they experienced with one another, this forgiveness, this making of peace with the very people who murdered her husband. The question is, is this kind of peace interpersonally reserved only for people like Elizabeth Elliot? Or can we experience it too? Let's take a look at number three on your outline. How do we put division to death? As we await the ultimate eschatological peace of God, when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, rules and reigns on the earth, we can even now experience this type of peace within the body of Christ. Now, most of us are not in a position to bring about international peace But we are in a position to resolve our interpersonal conflict and bring about peace. And so let me ask you a question, thinking here within the context of the church, not the world, what are the things that divide us today? Even within the church, what are the things that tend to divide us today? Maybe an easier question is what are the things that don't divide us today? It appears that even in the church, we've lost the ability to disagree without being divisive. We've lost the ability to engage in healthy, productive debate. We've allowed petty things to become ultimate things. So my question is, how can we be people of peace? Colossians 3 verse 15, even when we disagree, even when we have conflict. The first thing we need to do is understand the difference between disagreement, conflict, and division. The difference between disagreement, conflict, and division. Listen, being people of peace does not mean that we won't disagree. Even in the church, we should expect disagreement. It doesn't mean that we will all think the same, vote the same, walk the same, talk the same. We won't always agree. But in our disagreement we can still remain peaceable. We can still love one another, forgive one another, just as Christ has forgiven us. Now, at times when we disagree, we will also have conflict. Conflict is also inevitable. Not all conflict is unhealthy. In fact, some conflict is good. But it's how we handle that conflict, or if we handle that conflict, that ultimately leads to division. Division is essentially unresolved conflict. Unresolved conflict. So how do we resolve our conflict in such a way that it doesn't lead to division? Let me offer to you some great thoughts from Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker. If you don't have this book, I highly recommend it. He offers four basic principles, or the four G's, to resolve conflict and not lead to division. The first G is glorify God. He says biblical peacemaking is motivated and guided by a deep desire to bring honor to God by revealing the reconciling love and power of Jesus Christ. As we draw on his grace, follow his example, and put his teachings into practice, we can find freedom from the impulsive, self-centered decisions that make conflict worse. And instead, bring praise to God by displaying the power of the gospel in our lives. So again, the first step to biblical reconciliation is we have to realize that it's not about me. Again, to quote Paul in Colossians chapter 3, we have to die to ourselves. We have to die to these things. And instead, we have to live in such a way that glorifies God. Number two, we have to get the log out of our own eye. Get the log out of your own eye. Jesus teaches us to face up to our own contributions to a conflict before we focus on what others have done. When we overlooked, overlook other minor offenses and honestly admit our own faults, our opponents will often respond in kind. As tensions decrease, the way may be opened for sincere discussion, negotiation, and reconciliation. So we glorify God, number one. Number two, we get the log out of our own eye. How have I contributed to this problem, this conflict? Number three, we gently restore, Galatians 6.1. When others fail to see their contributions to the conflict, we sometimes need to graciously show them their fault. If they refuse to respond appropriately, Jesus calls us to involve respected friends, church leaders, and other objective, objective individuals who can help us encourage repentance and restore peace. So we glorify God, we get the log out of our own eye, then we go gently restore and forth, and finally we go and be reconciled. He says, finally, peacemaking involves a commitment a commitment to restoring damaged relationships and negotiating just agreements. When we forgive others as Jesus has forgiven us and seek solutions that satisfy others' interests as well as our own, the debris of conflict is cleared away and the door is opened for genuine peace. Again, this is from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. I highly recommend it. But the ultimate goal is peace. The peace that we have received from God, we extend towards others. And listen, I could offer hundreds of verses in Old and New Testament for your consideration, but let me simplify it by just quoting two more. Two statements from the master peacemaker, Jesus himself. The first one is Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Matthew 18, 21 and 22, Peter comes up and says to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Se- up to seven times? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. What I want you to see here is that what Jesus is saying is that if you have been wronged, if your brother, your sister has wronged you, whose responsibility is it to forgive? It's yours. It's your responsibility as a follower of Jesus to forgive people who have wronged you. But the second passage I want you to jot down is Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Jesus says, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering." So here we see the inverse, if you've wronged someone, your brother has something against you, you've wronged them in some way, you've sinned them in some way, Jesus says leave your offering at the altar and go, it's your responsibility to seek forgiveness. So in both cases, it's your responsibility, if you're a follower of Jesus and there's a broken relationship, whether you caused it or not, it doesn't matter, it's your responsibility to seek that peace and reconciliation. So what does all this have to do with dying and death? This is a series on Ars Moriendi, The Art of Dying. What does this have to do with dying and death? Well, again, the only reason we have separation, interpersonal conflict in the first place is because of sin. And I can tell you a sad story I've seen far too many times. is people who are dying. They're in hospice. They're in the hospital. And they're dying bitter because they have unresolved conflict in their life. They've carried, with it, uh, carried this bitterness, this conflict with them all the way to their deathbed. And the last thing they want to do is carry it with them to the grave. And it's as though they're, they're clinging to time, desperately grasping and hoping and waiting for a phone call. For someone to walk in the door for this last opportunity to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Listen, dying is one thing. But dying with bitterness and unresolved conflict is another thing. It is no way to die, and it is no way to live. Now, I know that of all of the sermons on dying and death, this is probably the most difficult thing to apply. This is the most challenging one. It's hard to forgive. It's hard to ask for forgiveness. It's hard to be at peace with all people. But again, just because it's hard doesn't mean we can ignore it. Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Have you done everything you can to resolve your broken relationships before it's too late. There on the back side of your outline, I've given you some application questions, but your one thing for this week is this. Are you in conflict or division with someone right now? Then I'm urging you, because you've received the peace of Christ, reconcile your broken relationships before it's too late. Put division in the body of Christ to death. War and peace, Romeo and Juliet, Hatfields and McCoys, Harry Potter and you know who, you and fill in the blank. Who is the person that God's laying on your heart to go and to make peace, to reconcile? May the Lord, the Prince of Peace, guide us by his spirit to die to ourselves And to live as the people of peace he's called us to be. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And we thank you for the conviction. I know this one's hard. It's hard for me. Most of us don't like conflict. It's humbling to ask for forgiveness. It's incredibly scary to go to people and, and talk through how they've hurt us and wronged us. And so, Father, we confess that the only way this is possible is by the power of your Spirit. The only way this is possible is because of the peace of Christ that we have received. And so, God, by the power of your Spirit, I would ask that you would help us, help me, help all of us, to be the people of peace you've called us to be, that as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And, Father, I pray specifically for our church here, Grace Bible Church, but also for other solid Bible-believing churches in DFW and around the world, that we would model the peace that our broken world is so longing to see, that unbelievers would see the way we reconcile, the way we forgive, the way we show compassion, that ultimately they would be drawn to the Prince of Peace, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.